Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to the Club Book with Boya J. Farah, the author of America Made Me a Black Man. Um, before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that's bringing him to us. Clubbook is a program of MELSA, M-E-L-S-A, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by library strategists. Part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library, Hennepin County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our feature event, essayist and poet, Poya J. Farah, immigrated to, to the United States in the mid-1990s as part of Somali diaspora when thousands of families fled the war-torn horn of Africa. Instead of finding safety and freedom, Farah quickly learned that his adoptive country is plagued by deep-seated issues of its own. Systematic injustices against Black people run a wide gap, from widespread police, police prejudice to countless microaggressions in workplace and social settings. Farah's memoir, America Made Me a Black Man, is one of the first ever book-length examinations of American racism written from an African immigrant's perspective. Notes Publishers Weekly, quote, with a singular poetic voice brimming with imagery, Boya challenges us to face difficult truths about the destructive forces that threaten Black lives, unquote. In addition to his writing career, Farah is a founder of the Abadi School in Garoe, Somalia, which teaches STEM skills to boys and girls, aged 13 to 24. After a short talk by our guests, we'll have time for audience Q&As. Simply drop your questions in the comments um, thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you would prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Clubbook here on Facebook or send an email to clubbook 
Minnesota MN Clubbook M N at gmail.com. Welcome, Mr. Boya. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're so glad to have you here. Tell us about briefly about the uh, this amazing book, a gift that you really shared with us called America Made Me a Black Man. T give us an, an overview of this book. I, thank you, thank you. First, I want to say thank you to you. Uh, thank you to Richmond, thank you to Dave. I must take a little time to also say thank you to the state of Minnesota, the land of, of 10,000 lakes and the land of uh, uh, the land that, that hosts most of Somalis outside of Western, you know, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so it's a wonderful, I, I, I belong there, I belong to you, it's beautiful. Uh, this particular book has been living inside of me for a while and one for one reason um you know when you're an immigrant especially an immigrant like me who came from uh, a place like somalia where there's a lot of war and famine i've seen everything all the tragedies that 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 we've seen in that particular country uh you come to this country you, you know it's lovely it's american dream so coming here i was chasing peace i was chasing home i was chasing american dream so for me to to write something that's critical to america was like oh no, my own mother said, don't do that. But I had to, in order for America, my adopted country, to look itself in the mirror, I had to make sure that I am truthful to the pen, that this African, brave African son shall tell America to look itself in the mirror. That's an American story itself. So basically, I was writing this book on the side uh, I was writing another book, but this is, I was writing for this for America. And this book is about life, love, and legacy. Uh, it's also my life in Mogadishu when I was born, my life in the valley, in the Nogal Valley with my own grandmother, Ayeyo, my life in the war, my life in the refugee camp, and my life in America as a black man living in America. Uh, and And basically what I learned over the years is um, a refugee person like me who adores America does not know America unless until you assimilate, until you get educated and get a job, that's when you get to know America, until you learn to drive. That is when you get to know the real America, the one that you didn't see when you were in Africa. So basically, I get to see America in, what, in the black man's perspective an African-born American perspective, because I am an, I'm a, I'm a, an African-born American, but African-American person will be an American-born African. You know, so a lot of it was basically my African-American friends were telling me that America, there's a, there's a different America, there's a different America. And I'm, and I'm like, no, 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 America is beautiful. Democracy lives here. It's fantastic. You can't tell me anything bad about America. So I was in completely, complete denial because I was in love. When you're in love, love blinds. Uh, but, but the reality is, uh, what I discover is basically, you know, racism is real and also worse than war. Uh, so basically that, that's how I came up with this book. I, was, uh, I had to write to America so America can look itself in the mirror and perhaps we can make this place a better place uh, if we tell the truth. Tell the truth. 
Thank you uh, your bravery actually shows in the book. And um, there, are, there are those kinds of books that you really wanted to read it again and again and again, you know. Uh, it sounds sometimes so classic um, um, and so honest and, and, and courageous. But I would love to ask you, from when you were born, there were a lot of celebrations, cultural celebrations, yes. happy yes. family, when you're a young grandma, the countess, the, the day you were born, the yes. celebration, the yes. girls' car market, um, yes. the neighbors eating and praying and continuous celebrations. Yes. Then there's a war. Yes. Civil war. Then you and Omar are walking down and you see baddies, people being shot in front of you. And there's one thing you beg. You, when you kneel down, you and Omar, and you beg instead of uh, God, begging God to get you out of there. You guys beg for a slow death. So from that to 11 years, at 11, you fled to Kenya, a desolate, hopeless refugee camp. To After four years of that, you came to America um, um, somewhere in Massachusetts in, uh, at 15. With that, from that hell to, to this hope, and bright world and, and peaceful world. And then meeting uh, Derek, uh, your African-American high school friend, then college, then the workplace. How do you recount from that despair of hopelessness to the camps, then coming to America with gleeful everything, even enjoying until you got sick to uh, eating the snow and playing with it. Then you grow up to college, then you see, you mm -hmm. go back to hopelessness and, uh, and the lack of hope, and you see the whole society sees you not as a man, but the color of your skin. So how do you transcend all those things and survive? Well, well basically, you know, um, um, Think about it. When I was in the refugee camp, America to me was to 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 be in America to was like to we is for to reach out a star, you know. Like I really, America was the star looking down on me. And when I was in a refugee camp, laying on a mat, looking at the star sky, the star, the single star that, that shines was America. But to be in America was basically to run in the rain. You know what I mean? As a teenager, you know, running over rain comes, you, you know, take your shirt off and run. That's how beautiful America was. Uh, so to be from that, what you just described, you know, war, refugee camp, all kind of bad stuff, and to be in Bedford, where the green is grass, not just the grass, but it's perfectly cut, it's clean. You know, dogs are inside. There's absolutely no animals outside. In the refugee camp, everything is bushed together. Animals dogs, feces, uh, everything is just is a disaster place. There's the diseases everywhere, dengue and other diseases. Uh, you know, to be in America was basically to enter the gate of heaven. You know, I, I thought I was living in that beautiful star. I was looking at it in the sky. I was inside of it. I was in the belly of that star. You know, so I don't know if I did justice explain, you know, uh, describing how beautiful I felt inside and how America matched the that childhood imagination of America, you know, what it is to be in America. Uh, so it was a two different world, you know, a world of death, despair, dengue fever, uh, 
uh, uh, malaria. So walking, trim grass in Bedford. It was it was fantastic. I I never thought I would I would discover, you know, from when I was in refugee camp, I thought democracy was dead. You know, everything died. I was waiting to die. And when you get to America, it's like you're born again. Now you can hope. Now you can dream. Now you can read Hemingway's or Tim O'Brien. And Tim O'Brien is from Minnesota, so let me give a shout out. It's a lot of people yeah. that I like who are from Minnesota, including Bob Dylan, which I listened to while I was writing this book. Um, so that, that's what it was. It was remarkable. It was a remarkable experience for me to go from there and you know experience what I have experienced what it means to be an African-American, what it means to be a Black in this country. It's a serious topic. Uh, one, one we must confront. If we want to be a better country, we cannot dance around uh, what's happening. We have to confront this evil. Uh, racism is evil. And I wanted to make sure I convey that in a very lovingly, beautifully crafted language. Thank you. I just want to talk... Well, there are two experiences I want to talk about mainly. There are so many experiences in your book, but I will divide it into two, and we don't have enough time on the radio. So yes. I will, um, the good experience as a kid, the gleeful kid, the, um, the innocent kid, so happy to be here, so loved America. And there were things that were happening to you, like when you went to the dentist, and uh, the two doctors were talking to each other about you, and you didn't speak that much English. And um, the, the pizza guy who treated you like a thug, and you saved that $5, you wanted to get that pizza that you pass by every day, and you yeah. see the, and the smell, and you wanted to get that American pizza, um, yeah. fries. And the first day you get there, the guy was treating you badly and threatening you with police. When did it occur to you? And I also want to talk about the other experience that any American kid goes through. So many kids, Somali American kids, and Oromo is Ethiopian, and immigrant kids in Minnesota went through too. The bully at this school. This time was Shotgun, who was bullying your, your, your brothers, younger brothers, and the fight. Um, when, did you, when did you make the crossover? You glee feel fullness and happiness, and that idea that I'm here, I made it, I'm in heaven. When did you start? Was it college, at work, in high school? The encounters with the police and, the, and other racist people? When did, you, when did you start to cross over that this is not heaven, this is challenging? When I became an American, an assimilated, immigrant, black, poor American, um, you know, uh, it, it, before, you know, when I was biking, I wanted to overlook, I wanted to, you know, that little piece of thing. It was like, oh, it's all right, you know, America's so beautiful, you know what I mean? So, but but all these little annoyances, all these uh, troubles, all these racism, is like a bullet penetrating your body. By the time you get to college or you start working, you're carrying so many bullets in your body, metaphorically. You know, so when I get to college, you know, I... Of course, I by then I had a car, and I got stopped a million, you know, so many times, and I'd have been a joke. Uh, and then I also began to listen to hip hop, uh, and they were they were my first introduction to African American life. Tupac, Prodigy, Wu Tang, you know, um, Ghostface Killer, and so many rappers that I used to admire because they do poetry behind the music. 
So it only when I begin to become an American, it's assimilated into the culture. That's when I actually begin to say, see bit by bit what it means to be black man in America. Oh, great. Um, talk about the, your interaction with people like Derek and many other African-Americans who thought you were just dreaming because you were a black man and you were not aware of the realities in the ground and on a daily basis that black people go through, which you will discover later. Um, we've, we have so many second and third generation young people here. They complain about racism on a daily basis. They, have, they, they see discrimination. A lot of first generation or overwhelming number of first generation um, don't see that. They, they still have that Somali culture of bravery, courage, and the best, you know. Will your courage from the nomadic culture or from Somalia um, that was instilled in you, that pride, when did you see that seeping away by the, these negative forces, cultural discrimination and systematic ones that you continue to encounter? Maybe through music it, or? It, it, it happened. Um... It, it eats your in, in, in insight, you know, it, it, it enters your liver, it enters your, your, your heart, it enters everything about your, your body. So I actually began to feel pain um, when I was working with Derek, and Derek was going through enormous pain, and I was watching him, and I was actually going through enormous pain myself. However, I didn't, I didn't really acknowledge it because the Somali culture, my father telling me, there's nobody equal to you. You are, there's no hierarchy between you and God. You're, you're free until you die. You know, that, that kind of culture, nomadic culture. That, there's a danger in that. There's actually beauty in that to, be, to have so much confidence. There's also danger in that because American racism is not an individual thing. It is a systematic thing. And when you're dealing with system, you don't know where the enemy is. You don't know where the bullet's going to come from metaphorically you know, where you're going to get hurt. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, the more I resist and, you know, uh, get inspiration from my Ayeyo, the more I get inspiration from my father, the more I stay brave, the actually, the more I broke down and the more sleep refused to visit me in the middle of the night. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. You have to be aware of it. You have to be aware of your culture. You have to have a, cultural awareness of where you are and where you came from and how to navigate the system. Mr. Boya, thank you. And, you know, I would like to ask you, because I'm an immigrant myself from Somalia, I share a lot of stuff with you, so to many people around here. And um, what I would like to ask you is, what was your perception of African-Americans when you negative. get your news, yes, it was negative. I was it was not positive at all. The reason being is when we were in Somalia, a young 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 boy looking at a TV in a refugee camp or in Mogadishu, we were watching uh, a portrayal of African Americans as thugs, as lazy people, and and when you when you get here, you actually get to know that that the image that you were looking at when you were in Somalia was actually you. I was looking at myself. Also, 
when, when I arrived in the US, back in the day, Discovery Channel was the biggest thing that, that we used to watch. We used to see Africans that, that Africans we've never seen before, Africans naked in the jungle running after monkeys. Those images, those betrayal of Africa didn't belong to us. Also the betrayal of African-Americans when we were in Africa didn't belong to us. So that information that was fed to me didn't really belong to the African-Americans. It didn't belong to me either, but I, that was the only image I got. Uh, so that, that is where the friction normally comes from between uh, us, the immigrants, and the African-Americans. But in reality, we're both Americans and the threat, you know, the racism is uh, democratic. You know, I, if I remember correctly, I read Malcolm X book a long time ago, and if, uh, I'm not sure if I'm right, but there was a quote that Western or European or Eastern European immigrants, when they land, I believe he said the first word they learn is nigger. Um, do you think that perception Malcolm X had white immigrants also comes with people of color immigrants like African immigrants because what they were exposed to through Discovery Channel and other channels or maybe huge uh, networks that portray Africa as savages? Uh, well, the image that's, we that's, same the image that's sent to outside of America, like I said, is democratic about black people. So whether you're white or, or black, when you arrive to this country, that's what you look at. You know, you, you, I, I remember being afraid of two African-Americans on the bus from Bedford to a place called Elwife, you know, first bus ever. And I'm looking at myself and I'm being afraid of my own self, you know, in a way, you yeah. know, because years after I, re I, re I realized that it was the person that I was afraid of was actually me. So that, that image of, is, uh, of black people as such is democratic and it's not real. It is uh, it's a false image. Let's go back to the happy days in America uh, when you were younger and new and clueless. And um, at one point you mentioned that your family and you were the tallest and darkest people in Medford, Massachusetts. Bedford, Massachusetts. Were you feeling at that time any pressure being black or were you proud at that age? I was as tall as, I don't know, I could reach the sky and touch the clouds. Mm. You know, I was proud of myself. I was proud of America. I was proud of the green grass. I, wanted, I used to watch, you know, 99% of the town is white. And I used to watch them and I used to listen to them and try to understand what they were saying. I actually, I was eager to touch them, touch their hair and touch their skin and see what it's made out of. It was, a, it, was a, it was, I've never seen so many white people. As a child, you know, you get something that you've never been exposed to. But likewise, they also thought the same thing about me because every time I, I walked down the street, the kids used to just watch me as if I am a different creature. So that those, you know, we didn't know each other. You know, I, they didn't, they have never seen me. I've never seen them. But there's, there's a beauty to that of knowing each other and watching each other. And at the same time, knowing that each other, Myself and them, we belong to each other. We belong to the same species. So there was, there was a beauty to it. Another thing in those innocent days, but you later recounted, is that when your uh, secondhand old bike 
your riding was hit and you the the all white woman as you wrote was concerned about your health and she wanted to take you to the er to take care of you but you just wanted to go and she was still looking at you as you go trying to make sure you're okay and um you liked that that she cared you really loved it that people care and they, they care about you and you said but this old lady this old american woman is the america of my imagination new fascinating and dangerous what do you mean by that well what i mean by it it goes back to somali culture the one who honors you you honor them mm. you know uh, america honor us it honor me i continue to feel honored even now uh and you can see the love in the language of how i describe america i could not imagine uh that the america that honor me even if even if i'm bloody and my bike is broken it was just unimaginable i was incredibly poor that 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 bike was really big deal to me but at the same time i just couldn't imagine that my america the one that brought me to this country the one that allowed me in on the on the clean streets that i can now ask to fix my my scratches or to fix my bike it's unimaginable for me i owe more to america i owe my life to america i came from death you know what i mean so it's like it's like uh, uh, i don't know if you can describe it i think i think immigrant like me loves america more than mega people more than any other american that is the truth <laughs> that's true yeah. yeah that is the truth absolutely i agree with you um you know um i we have some good questions already submitted by our audience and i really wanted to ask those questions i also had those questions like Please. you know about george floyd about what trick you but i'm not going to borrow their questions i will do that later and uh, but i will continue with my fascination with your book and um Thank um you. there was a point about the weather we're muslim and like you i grew up in somalia and um and i left it young and the we didn't have a weather station uh we didn't have a weather forecasting system uh nightly or any time we never heard of at that time mm-hmm. so you were watching tv and um this forecast uh the a weatherman was telling you there's going to be snow the first time you snow tomorrow exact time and what was your reactions well uh, you can understand i came from a culture as different you know you think about religion you think about god you can think about you know the angels you think mm. about a lot of big things and mm. then all of a sudden this white man with a with a suit who probably gets drunk you mm. know tells us that you know a forbidden drink we don't drink right and mm. um all of a sudden this guy says tomorrow there's going to be a snow and i'm like there's no way this is going to be true <laughs> so you know for for the snow to fall um uh, i connected that to the magic of america really in my in my young young imagination the same way that i thought the grass is cut by the, or you know the angels of the night i thought the magic of america is real because now america is communicating with god to get this cuz you know for they were they were told the snow was going to come exactly that particular time so you can understand the imagination of a child is like exemplified and it's 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 uh it, it, it's enlarged 
listening to music, you love music. I do love music. And um, I know you didn't know that music in this country is tribal. Um, color based in most of it, a lot of it. And um, Tupac Shakur was admired by many people, white and black. And uh, he was a radical at that time. Um, were you exposed to Tupac Shakur, uh, Tupac Shakur um, in America or in the camps? Because I know a lot of people who were exposed to that in the, uh, in the refugee camps. No, I was exposed to it here in America. And um, People like Tupac Shakur and many folks like him in the rabbit, uh, music at that time who were rebelling uh, discrimination and, and, and mistreatment in America, as a lot of people see it, how much influence did they have on you to help you transition from the gleeful childhood, finding the, the shining star of America to the realities in the ground? Was that the only vehicle or there were many vehicles? There were many vehicles. Um, you know, I, I, at that time, I was exposed also to literature. You know, like I said, Tim O'Brien, who lives in Minnesota, uh, the Hemingway, um, Alex Haley, Malcolm X book, James Baldwin. I was, I was a reader of America. I was a reader of literature, New York Times, NPR. You know, I was a reader. I was, I was getting educated. But at the same time, Tupac reminded me of poetry. Remember, I am a from, I am the son that brave son from a nation of poets. I cannot deny poetry. And I thought Tupac was, you know, it reminds me of a leader, a young leader telling his people to stand up and ask for equality. You know, his, he was a brave African, uh, American born African son. And he reminds me of young Somali doing poetry in the valley. Uh, so the, the connection was made because of poetry and the, and the, and, um, the, the brave, behind the words. What would you, were you able to go back and visit the refugee camps or back in Somalia? Were you, did you had, did you ever have any opportunity to talk to gleeful refugees who were in route or maybe praying to God to be uh, given a, a chance in America or they were already in process were you ever able to make a speech to them and have a conversation with them? I have, yes, a few times. What was, they, uh, how, how convincing were you? Well, well, uh, you know, I see myself in their shoes. So it's not like, you know, I just have to go back to the pages of my book, mm. you know, in, in, in the reservoir of my being. You know, there's a river inside of me and that river, that river has, you know, they, they're in it. You know what I mean? I've seen, I've seen refugee and what it feels like, so I can understand. I mean, I'm very empathetic and sympathetic, uh, not just uh, in Somalia, but all over the world, including Ukraine, and because and, war is, it doesn't really discriminate, um, and Syria and all the other parts of the, the world that is at war, including Yemen. I feel for them. There were many points in your book that you always apologize for the mistakes of others when you were younger, for their discrimination, you may not say discrimination, maybe you were seeing as a bad behavior or badness or, or, or attitude, rude attitude, but your um, harmonizing always was, oh, this is their country, they're American, I'm not American, 
Then at one point you add, I'm not American yet. So were you seeing yourself as an outsider completely or you saw yourself um, a new arrival that one day will be an American like them? Uh, America tells you you're not, you don't belong. You know, even now, writing this book, some of my white friends says, you came from where? Somalia? And you wrote this book? Like, what is wrong with you? You should be writing something, you know, you're, 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 you're grateful. You know, you're not supposed to speak when you're, when you're, when you're an immigrant. Uh, but, it, you know, looking back, it just, uh, you know, I, I was learning. I was learning a lot. America was teaching me a lot of things and I had to uh, capture it. I'm sorry, what yep. was that? Say, say that question one more time. I think I, I messed it up. Uh, what was I that? Think, well, you I answered think, it? All right. But uh, what I was trying to Actually, say... one, sorry, one thing I wanted to say was that, that for me to say sorry, sorry, it was actually a, a survival tactic. Uh, my mother was school. And my mother got educated in the school of survival. You know, my our father died in 1989. I would say my mother is highly educated in terms of survival because she's she survived war, she survived with kids, refugee camps, she survived here in the U.S. for 30 years. So she was educated in terms of the school of survival, and she always told us, "Apologize, apologize," as a way for us to save our black bodies from cops yeah you you said sorry so many times um and yeah. i actually justified and i like that because um you are in survival mode yes. uh, um tell me about your experience in college um i might before you do that my question is so many african-americans who are born here were failing and you put quite a good uh, information on that. We're failing. Um, they were here for centuries. Um, you got here, you didn't speak English. Uh, you got support. You went through. Um, you meet, you go to school with a, a lot of them, uh, a lot of people of all um, few Black uh, African-Americans. And Derek was one character, uh, one great guy there. Um, he, he gets surprised by your actions, especially when you stand up, you are skinny, very skinny. Um, <laughs> always people were talked about your, how skinny you were. Um, and you fight with a with shotgun in high school. You, 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 you're the attacker because he, he, he bullied your brothers. And, shot, and Derek was there and he was shocked at what you did. And everybody thought you were crazy. So two experiences, your experience as an African immigrant and African-American son that was here for 400 years. When did your experience merge and become friends? Three different stages, high school, you went to college together, then you started to work together after college, when? Well, basically, you know, uh, you know, we have that Somali culture of you are the son, you are the boy. And, you know, bravery determines how you react, not how big you are. I've never been big, but, you know, I was that brave son that looks up the person in the eyes and says, you know, you cannot do that. And if they repeat that they're going to do it, then that triggers response. 
this is before I became an American. You know, that's my culture. But at the same time, I can never, you know, you cannot remove culture from your culture is permanent. It's not like religion where you can just stop praying. Culture is inside of you. It's, it's, a, it's part of your ritual. I couldn't really remove that culture out of me. So I had to look people in the eyes and say, you know, you know this, is, this is wrong. Where an African-American child like Derek, um, God, God bless the dead, would say he was trained by the system, the system of hierarchy, the system of oppression. He's part of the system. He's, uh, he, he was trained. There's, he understood the system that he could break his bones. I was innocent of that. I didn't know the system could break me. So, you know, I was ready to fight. Well, he was saying that, yo, you don't understand, man. Yo, you don't understand. He's going to get you. They're going to get you, man. And I'm like, no, man, who's they? I'm destined. You know, destiny rules. But in reality, America owns you. And America will determine your, your place in, in, in this country because of the system. So, you know, little by little, I get to understand where I am, what happened to Derek. I watch other people. And uh, by watching them, I saw myself. And then the same thing happened to me. That's it. I became an American after that. I am now, I'm an American. Great. I'm very glad of that. And what I would like to ask you now is, um, you try to do something about this racism. You know, not you just didn't accept it before you even write a book uh, or a memoir. You just try to open a conversation by talking to people about race. You find out Americans will not talk about this. Will not feel comfortable about, especially white America. White America doesn't want to talk about race or discrimination or what's happening to other people or what they do to other people. And you used um, analogy that that was strong. <laughs> I remember now that uh, people will not talk about this. Um, it's like you know, if you talk about George Floyd, um, Arbery, and all these tons of people you mentioned, the black people who were killed or murdered or maimed or dehumanized, and even your friends don't want to talk about that. And what do you think? What is going on? Why America, white America doesn't want to discuss this tragedy um, that maims and kills people? or destroys the minds of people, of young people, this oppression. What do you think is making white America more and more uncomfortable to talk about this? To be as honest as the clear sky, uh, as you I, would say, I would say that uh, white America is not afraid of 30%, 13% of the population. White America is afraid of their own conscience. You know, and it's hard to carry brutality, you know, for many years. Um, and that is, that is a position that you don't want to be in. It's, it's better for, for us, for the country, to confront this evilness and include the, uh, the, the American-born African children in the American experience. I think that's, that's, the, that, that, that's a good way to solve this problem. You know, uh, white America does not want to face this because... It's a, it's a big, it's a painful reality that, that they carry. 
So it's not the people that they are, it's their own conscious. What do you yeah, think? What do you think we as a nation of all kinds of faiths and people and colors and flags, as one United Nation, what do you think we should do to open up this conversation? One, read the book. Number one. And then write your own book as well. Mm -hmm. And let this flame of discussion spark a young American child to fix what's broken. You know, the, the, this country belongs to the young. It's the young who determine where, the, where this country will go. So, you know, I, I am not, a, I'm just a, simply a writer. I'll write the story. It's your job. Just like, you know, Tupac put those songs, he's gone. It is your job to interpret and to carry on the flame of America. America is super beautiful. This country is very rich, very diverse. You know, you know what I miss when I was in Africa? I miss diversity. I miss Starbucks. I miss Chipotle. I miss seeing so many faces. You know, as a writer, I love humanity, human beings. This country you, is unlike any other country under the sun. And this is the problem that we're looking at. It's tiny if we're really serious about it. So hopefully the young people can fix what's broken. The old refuse to confront the pain. The young can entertain the, the brutality against black bodies because it cannot, move, it cannot go on. I'm telling you, karma used to be carried by turtles before. It is now carried by eagles. Karma comes back quickly. Uh, and so it's time for us to confront this evilness called racism because it is worse than war. A lot of people are not really very happy uh, at this time what's happening in the country and not only not happy, but they're not optimistic about the future. And they're saying Trump people, right-wing people are really getting bigger and bolder to take America back, whether it's a women's rights, whether it's a black vote suppression is back in some southern parts of the country. Uh, a lot of bad signs are popping up. Uh, conversation among people to solve their differences is diminishing. Um, having different opinions and also having the civility is also not as great as it used to be. America is a great country and a country of immigrants, except the native people. Everybody else is at one point was and is an immigrant. Sure. Do you think like many people who are not hopeful that tolerance is at risk, whether it's a religion, uh, whether it's um, a diversity, whether it's a, in any in form? Uh, I'm a survivor of war. My life is full of tragedy. And the only reason why I'm talking to you is because I'm hopeful. And hope shall never die. The ink of my pen is hopeful. You know, there's no way, you know, people need hope to change. To even, to even wake up in the morning and have a coffee, you need hope. Um, I don't really see this, you know, uh, your wor words are very important. I think we should use the right words in terms of being hopeful. Uh, that young Americans can fix this. You and I can talk about the hope 
then they, you and I, you know, other young people can be hopeful. They can carry their hope forward. I like to see the green grass continue because war will gray that green grass, you know. So I'm hopeful. I don't, I, I, I see hope. I was gonna, I would love to ask you more questions and uh, we're running out of time. I want to be respectful of people who took time and sent um, uh, questions. And um, I couldn't ask you many questions that would lead to George Floyd, but there's a big question here that does that. And I was very okay. respectful, but uh, very tempting all the time. Um, first question from the audience. When you resettled in New England in the early 1990s, what kinds of support did you receive? For example, did the school offer special interpretation or language assistance? In what ways is the experience of a refugee New American in 2022 different from what you experienced? There are a couple of questions oh, there. Oh, what I received in 1993 Bedford changed my life. And what I mean by it is this. Um, remember, I came from death and, and deprivation and, and disaster, really horrible place. I was not really... Uh, people that didn't relate to me, people that were not my kin, that were not my family, they didn't even look like me. They're white people. She gave me something. You know, they gave me bikes, they gave me food, they gave me jackets. That gave me, uh, they gave me the idea of they care for me, I care for them. You know, I'm, I am connected to that human experience. And that has, so being a pessimist, I was a pessimist, but now I became an optimist. I became a lover of human beings, wherever we are, they are. So it really, they really gave us, I write about it in the book. First time when I went to Bedford High School, they, there were two or three white people waiting for me with a flag. I mean, remember, I was waiting away from that flag, you know, as a child. So I didn't even know the flag was blue, really, to be honest, Somali flag. And they actually said, you are Somali-American. And they welcomed me. They got me a teacher. They got me everything. So shout out to Bedford High School I got love for them, and they, they changed my life in terms of becoming an optimist. And I, I hope shall never die because of that. Hope in humanity shall never die because of that. We are interconnected. Good. That's what, that was one part of the, um, I think, of the question uh, about the, that was a part of the school. But um, the way you were working with by Medford School and communities, um, were there interpreters available? And uh, however, in any way or form, at that time, back early 1990s, they welcomed you. Do you think what's different from for the new refugees who come 2022, this year or last year, do they still get the same support, all support minimum, or they got more support? Well, things change. I remember back then, uh, you know, I was the only high school, I was the only refugee kid in the whole school, you know, so there were not many. You know, the country was not as open as it is now. So now there, there are more and more refugees coming in. So I'm sure the resources is not, is not as plentiful as back in the day when, I, when, I, when we came. Because when we came, we were the only one. And now every, almost every high school that you go to, there's a whole community of refugees. Uh, remember, I, I, I was the only ESL class in the whole entire class. Wow. One teacher, myself, Esty. I shall never, I shall never forget. You know, and she introduced me to books like Hemingway's book, Old Man in the Sea, Tim O'Brien, 
you know, so many little books, um, the scholar letter, you know, so it was, it was fantastic. But I think now it's different because of the, the number mm -hmm. of, you know, fleeing refugees from all over the world coming into the United States. Thank you very much, Mr. Boya. Uh, my, the second question from our audience is, what made you decide to be a writer? If you can get me upset, I'll write about you. <laughs> uh, 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 America upset me, you know, uh, because the, the love that I have for America and the treatment that I get are two different things. And if you love something, you do not walk away. You're right. So I, I consider this book metaphorically a love story to my adopted country. Thank you. Another audience member writes to you, how did your family react when you told them you were thinking of writing such a personal memoir? Did family members or anyone else for that matter read drafts and offer you feedback? Uh, no, uh, but I, my mom, I'm very close to my mom. Uh, and my mom says, do not write it. If you're going to write to America, make sure you say, I love you, America. I love you, America. And I love you, America. Because my mother has never been assimilated to the country. She never learned the language. It is as if she's not an American, even though she's a citizen American. But I am an American. You know, I drive on the highways. I feel what, you know, I, when, when I watch George Floyd, I feel his pain. I, I feel the humiliation in his death. I see myself in him. So because I'm an American, I see the American pain and I had to, you know, I felt like I have to write to America. But my mother would say, don't write anything bad about America. Say everything lovely, nothing else. Great, thank you. Another audience member asking you, well, that person said, I'm a familiar with Boyha's essay work, but have not read the book. It's on pre-order. I'm curious about the story. Excuse me. I am curious about the story behind the story, namely what drew him or you drew you to writing a book length work. Did you find it hard to land a major publisher? No, because I tell you why. I, I, I'm an overly confident human being. I never doubt my ability to publish a book. Um, the hardest thing was to uh, do the reconciliation, uh, internal reconciliation, inside reconciliation, whether I should write to America or not. Because at the end of the day, I, I love America and I still remember that green grass. So I'm like, should I say everything about America or should I not? Should I hide? You know, all these things in my head that saying hide everything bad about America, just say good things. You know, that reconciliation took a longer time than the actual writing. You know, the actual writing was very easy for I'm a writer. Thank you. Thank you. Another audience um, member asked you what was the hardest part of the book to write part two which parts flowed most most naturally uh, my grandmother's story flowed absolutely as natural as rain falling from the sky really 
uh, or, you know, my childhood memory in the valley of running after a goat. You know, it's very, very beautiful. And also, uh, in a way, as I felt as if my, my grandmother, my, may she rest in peace, or my father looking at me. You know, even my mother, my father's death was painful, but at the same time, it was, it was very easy because I watched him die. You know, the way Somalis love, show love. Somalis, they don't say, I love you. They show the person that they love. I've never, I've never, you know, I couldn't say my father, I love you. It just doesn't work. You have to show the love. And, you know, when he, the day he died, I was sitting next to him showing him the love, you know, cleaning him up or, you know, praying for him and all those things. So it was easy for me to write about, you know, those who are not uh, my father or my, my grandmother to make sure I honor them. Yeah, so they, but they be proud of me as their African son. I love that part too. But also just to educate our some of our neighbors and audio, your audience, um, you don't say I love you in Somali culture, especially in the nomadic culture. That's yeah. not right, especially yeah. if you are a man. Um, but you show the love. You show the love, yes. Yes. By sitting next to him and wiping, it's not side of him, or, you know, can... bring him water. That's how I show my father love, you know, and but you never said the way it is. I, I, I said it when he was at his, he was dying. I mean, I could see the, you could feel the angel of, of death hovering over him mm. and yanking the, the life out of his face and his mouth and his eyes opening up. At that time, of course, I whisper love to my departed father. But and, I'm, sure? and I'm happy now that he, he, uh, I feel like now he's proud of this son. Thank you. A couple more questions before we wrap right. up. Um, seven, uh, will you tell us about the Abadi School in Grower? That's another audience member. Yes. Uh, the Abadi School, was, uh, uh, I believe that there's a reason why you know, uh, I survived all these horrible stuff in life. And I want to, I want to do something before my, my, the angel of die, death visits me. Uh, so one day I, after I went through all these things, I shipped a couple of containers from here. I actually bought all the chairs and everything from Craigslist and put in a container and shipped it across the sea and went to Goro and opened up a school. Uh, and by the I way, really, uh, I'm sorry to you. By the way, could you explain what Goro is? Garo is in northeastern Somalia, the capital city of Puntland region. It's part of Somalia. Uh, it's a region that is safe. Um, and basically, I shipped there and opened up the school and had 120 students. I was a teacher, a couple other Kenyan teachers were teaching with me. And then COVID-19 happened and other challenges happened. But, you know, it's, a, it's an endeavor of mine to contribute to the living. Thank you. My, the last question from the audience. What are you reading? What kind of books are you reading right now? Are there Somali-born writers you would recommend that others check out? You know, I'm an excellent writer. Uh, however, uh, Nuruddin Farah is a, it's a, it's a, it's a famous Somali writer. Uh, and there's another uh, writer called Abdi. He um, uh, called me American, I think that's the name of the book. Yeah, um, I, I just picked it up. Um, uh, so there are uh, quite a few, or 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 um, or um, um, the Black Mamba, um, uh, a girl from I think London, 
uh, right. I, yeah, I'm, thank you, thank you. Abdinur Eftin, yeah, uh, uh, his book. Um, so those are the books. But what I'm, what I'm, why I'm right, actually reading right now is Tanahisa Coates' book. I think that's uh, a new James Baldwin kind of a writer, brave soul. Yes. Uh, and also, I write other. I'm reading other other authors as well that are that are as brave as a writer okay. should be. Thank you for that. The last question that um, audience member, check out Hennepin County Library. They have a good collection of Somali writers and books and um, a lot of work there. I believe Hennepin County has the biggest collection, I believe. Wow. Uh, also, I just want to tell that the audience that we have a quite a good, well-known uh, authors here nice. from uh, Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, in the Twin Cities. So check it out. Ahmed Yusuf Ismail. Uh, Ahmed Ismail Yusuf is one of them. He's a playwright. He's a composer. He's a writer. He's a, uh, many things he does. Um, he's also a Somali teacher. He used to be a Somali teacher at South High. So check it out. Here in County Library. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to conclude our... I want to thank you, uh, author Boya. Thank you very much. I also want to thank... Uh, Club book of the Twin Cities and also Hennepin County Libraries. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Have a great night, everyone. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library event with Boya J. Farah. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Pong Shepherd. Speculative fiction writer Pong Shepherd burst onto the literary scene in 2019 with The Book of M. Her anticipated follow-up, The Cartographers, follows a budding scholar who comes into possession of an old highway map. This nondescript heirloom harbors fantastical and dangerous secrets. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.